This is Design Tracks, a podcast by Design Matters, made for designers by designers. We'll bring together creatives with diverse backgrounds and skills from all around the globe to talk about crafting quality design and empowering diversity. This season, we'll focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Design Matters is a global community of designers who love to explore and inspire each other to break new ground in the digital realm. Join our conferences in Copenhagen, Tokyo, Mexico City, and Lagos, and help us spread knowledge and ideas. Read more about us in designmatters.io, and follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter at designmattersdk. If you are enjoying our content, follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and leave us a review. We truly value your feedback and support, and we want to make sure you love each episode. Our speaker of today, Ginger Chin. Ginger is a device architect at AT&T Mobility, responsible for defining technical requirements for mobile devices. Ginger's diverse background includes teaching engineer courses, working as a software engineer, and applying simulation technology to various fields. As an independent speaker, as part of panels, and as an AT&T representative, she frequently speaks to different groups on diversity and inclusion best practices, presents self-development and self-awareness workshops that help uncover internally and externally directed cognitive bias, and shares her own transgender experience. Without further ado, our conversation with Ginger Chin. Hi, everyone. My name is Leishi Curbelo, co-host of Design Tracks. I'm not so typical Latina. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm recording from the beautiful Aslan from Puerto Rico, when every day it's a fiesta, just saying. And with me, my another co-host, Mr. Sam Horner. Hi, Leishi. Uh, my name is Sam Horner. I'm a British ex expat living in sunny Los Angeles, just surviving the weekend of a tropical storm wow. and an earthquake in one weekend. Like really, really throwing the natural disasters at us. It felt like I was in a in a Dwayne the Rock Johnson movie. Are you okay? <laughs> yeah, I'm fine. Um, I think. In the end, I think my plants really enjoyed the rain, and I think California will appreciate the large amount of rain. But yeah, there's some there's some severe fl flooding and, and damage in certain parts of California. So from where I was, we survived most of it pretty well. I hope everyone is good. Um, if not, you have a small bathroom on my house in Puerto Rico. Just saying. And f <laughs> phenomenal coffee in Puerto Rico. So you know, I'm I'm always always down to come visit <laughs> well today with us we have a phenomenal speakers as always we with us today we have the pleasure to record ginger chin how are you ginger hey G hey i'm doing well this is uh Hi, ginger. it's an exciting day because uh here up in seattle we are watching the sky turn brown uh the forest fires are oh. creating a little bit of a challenge for us probably will last a few more days but uh, it is something we've survived before and I'm looking forward to getting on my bicycle and actually enjoying some of the remaining days of the summer season. I think everyone deserves like one day and a, and a bike. Like for me, I wish that I can do that, like really near to the ocean. Like it's just beautiful. I don't know why I need to just hang out uh, more often. <laughs> it's, my, it's my favorite part of my day is cycling down to the beach. It is my highlights. So, Ginger, I'm uh, sorry. You're also getting the best parts of the West Coast all in one <laughs> tiny packed weekend. Right. Wow. 
What is going on with the world? <laughs> hmm. Maybe we could talk about uh, global warming in another season of Design Tracks. <laughs> I think that could be a really good season. <laughs> so for today, we will be talking about diversity and inclusion. And for us, it's really important that Ginger give us like a little bit of her um, opinion about it. We will start like um, asking you, Ginger, can you tell us about your journey in the field of electrical engineering and how it led you to your current role as device architect at AT&T Mobility. Yeah, you know, I'd like to start this journey even before school oh, because cool. uh, as a little kid, I was already experimenting with electrical appliances <laughs> and Christmas lights. This was That sounds dangerous. <laughs> oh, it was dangerous. It was horribly dangerous. I melted a few screwdrivers and blew up a lot of light bulbs. It was something, however, that was encouraged of boys, and it was not something encouraged of girls, like my sister. And because I'm transgender, I had the advantage of that upbringing and that support. And so I would say that a really big part of my journey into classical electrical engineering was rooted in the support and the acceptance and the encouragement that I got from my parents who gave me Lego and Tinker Toys and Erector sets and chemistry sets, electronics kits, everything. But uh, you know, one of the things I learned from simply experimenting was uh, the, the joy of discovering limits and understanding at a more intuitive level, things like structures and the <laughs> the maximum tolerable voltage of a little Christmas tree bulb <laughs> and that when you stick them directly into a socket, uh, bad things can happen. <laughs> but it was it was a remarkable learning experience. I'm, I'm fortunate in that I never really got hurt and in the process learned an awful lot about intuitive engineering, which also gave me a sense to bring it into my play. I was modifying some of my toys with lights and sound uh, well before lights and sound turned up in you know, off-the-shelf products. So that was, uh, that was sort of the beginning of my electrical engineering journey. Uh, when I was in college, I had the choice of two professions. I could go into a traditional engineering field, which at the time, the hottest field was electrical engineering the guarantee would be that I would be pretty well paid having entered into one of the hot fields. But my heart was also set on architecture and architecture brings in a completely different set of aesthetics and understanding of human needs. And in a way, I, I'm sad that I wasn't able to pursue the architecture. I did choose electrical engineering but I've always kept that in the back of my mind as, as a, this, little, this little grain of regret, which turned into a reminder that you know, I can find creativity and aesthetics anywhere. And it's really up to me to create, even if it's just not immediately put in front of me. So you, right. you are almost like a designer by heart. I, I think you could say that. And what probably kept me from that was the need to live up to other people's expectations. 
because my parents were both mathematicians and of an engineering leaning. And so architecture was something foreign to them. And there's a lot about, there's a lot about uh, satisfying the hopes and dreams of parents or meeting the expectations of your manager that I learned over time is a constraint on creativity. For me, it's like a, a highlight how you mentioned that in your childhood, it was like encouraged to like learn all these skills and be like the person to actually do these things because of your gender at that moment. And I remember myself being a, a, a girl and my dad told me like, let's go, let's go play basketball. And my mom just screaming like, no, don't do that with the girl. And it was like, what? And in that moment, I was like, a, just like a young girl. I was not understanding like the gender stereotypes. And I, I'm so grateful that my dad doesn't have like that, like constrained mindset of like, whatever, she can do sports too. Right. And do you think your like, your, your career will be, it will be differently if your approach with your parents, it will be like in another way in that moment? I think so. I mean, I can look to my sister. She ended up going into law, which mm -hmm. is fairly gender neutral profession and it was something that certainly fascinated me but it uh it it didn't it didn't really play to the skills that I had developed at a young age because I was in math club I was in chess club I was doing the the homegrown engineering and pyrotechnics I, I was doing all of it and it was just more natural for me to head into engineering Uh, certainly these days, there is a role for law in equity. And I think that's where I would have found my place in law, ultimately. But, uh, well, that is a path uh, unexplored. And those are questions unanswered. Ne never is too late, just saying. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, life is, life is long, Ginger. If you decide that Laurel one day is your path or architecture, Uh, there is still plenty of time for us all to uh, make adjustments and find the things that make us happy um, as long as we can live our lives that way. So you, there's plenty of time. So I'm saying, Ginger, I, I, there could still be many a building uh, in your future. If that's what you decide uh, brings you joy. Oh, absolutely. I, I totally agree. Uh, even though it wasn't a building, it was a, a presence on a stage in a rock band that currently has my attention as my, uh, my, my side hustle and the, the thing that brings me a lot of joy. So yes, there's a lot of creativity and communications that I've managed to weave into uh, the rest of my career, which I would say was briefly derailed by the, the the unique assignment of working on nuclear weapons for a period of time, uh, working with testing and deployment strategies and intrusion detection. Uh, there was a lot of amazing engineering uh, that went along with nuclear weapons, but it was also something that eventually forced me to question my my values and yes it was fun it was exciting uh, but it at the you know, ultimately it became something that was not fulfilling as i began to uh, enter the middle phase of my career so i moved on from that 
and moved into communications, which I discovered was it was it was not entirely intentional. It was my it was my training in college, which was in the esoteric field of analog and digital signal processing mathematics. But uh, the communications ended up being the, the, the fabric through which I would weave a lot of my interests and loves. So the, the communications engineering has been a part of much of my career. I do storytelling, I do the music, you know, ultimately, it, it occurred to me very late in life that, you know, the, the defining thread of my interests was in the world of communications, which is wonderful because it's a very, it's a very human pursuit. And it gives me pretty deep contact with uh, psychology and emotion and communities. Uh, it's, I'm glad I eventually found that connection because it would not have been one of those things I would want to um, go to my deathbed not having figured out. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. You talk about uh, find, figuring out what your boundaries were, right? And finding out where your sweet spot is. And that happens through experimentation, even if it's in your career, in your, in your example, right? Of finding, finding an area that you like. To most people, like as soon as you said it, as soon as you said, um, nuclear testing I was like whoa that sounds really interesting but then you're like well yeah probably to most people it does but when you find yourself in that space and you're finding what makes you comfortable you have to hit the uh, to use the the boring old bowling analogy of hitting you hitting the uh, barriers to understand like where your lane is um, that's amazing that you've been able to do that um, and I'm sure and hopefully will continue to do that right as your as your tastes and interests change which I think is all more important as um, many of our fields exist now. They didn't exist 15 years ago, and they probably and they may not exist in 15 years' time. So my first job was a Flash developer, and that job <laughs> no longer exists. So I'm very aware of um, adjusting uh, based on on interests and the current needs of the world. Yeah, the adjustments are are based both both on interests and what the world is asking for, uh, perhaps our own perception of what the world needs, and what what. I ultimately allowed myself to do. I mean, I, I allowed myself to explore the risks of coming out. And in doing so, it, it taught me that I could overcome one of the biggest unimaginable barriers that uh, I could have been faced with. And it's a very freeing experience to have survived, succeeded, and thrived through that process, because it really, it really removes a lot of the, the barriers like you were saying to to greater discoveries and i'm sure there are lots of people listening who will see uh see that act as massively inspiring but also just great to see somebody who um so happy on the other side ginger yeah seem, yeah <laughs> which is great um i'm gonna pull this pull us back into getting into your your background um so i have here that you have over 70 patents is that correct that's right. true. Wow. In various different areas of business processes, like communications, obviously, as we've been talking about computing, user interfaces, um, I'd love to learn a little bit more about how you balance that inventive spirit with the human-centered approach in your engineering practices. Uh, how do you balance those things together? Yeah, you know, it turns out that the, the engineering practices and the inventiveness 
uh, they aren't competing for the same space. Uh, in, in my world, uh, they exist in a complementary way and, and a little bit separately, although they, they kind of touch on the same domains for the most part. Uh, you know, I would have I loved to have found the perfect job that gave me everything, location, pay, coworkers, uh, assignments, uh, social impact, uh, engineering excitement. It, it, you know, there are a few lucky people who find that. And uh, that's generally been a challenge for me. And as a result, I've had to make some of my opportunities elsewhere. And one of the things that I stumbled on was this notion that patents are not restricted to white lab coded geniuses. You don't have to be a PhD. You don't have to be uh, the, the rocket scientist. Patents have always been defined as, as existing within the reach of ordinary people. In fact, if, you know, it, it, would, it took this revelation on my part to understand that uh, as I you know, as I do my daily work, I have these usual constraints to work under. But the world of inventiveness of patents in particular, and it really doesn't matter what country you go to, all they want is something unique, something that's never been thought of before or written about or prototyped. And if you can get your mind out of that box enough, then you are in a ripe place to stumble across those jewels. And getting out of that box, that, that's the complementary balance. Yes, my daily work is informed by the world of cell phones, uh, the technologies that are available, the manufacturing processes, the costs, the, uh, the, the usability concerns, those shape the world in which I live right now. And my understanding of the world of patents gives me permission and encourages me to think five or 10 years beyond that. And it means temporarily setting aside my usual day-to-day -day limitations. And I'm fortunate that I work for an organization that encourages that kind of exploration. And we are given all of the internal support, the, the freedom to collaborate and talk with the few rocket scientists that we might know to develop these ideas and pursue them with the help of uh, our company and eventually develop those into patentable ideas. So I get to play in both spaces within the practical constraints, but also in a visionary way. And that's how I, I balance those two worlds. And I think just the, the mere fact that uh, some of my ideas have been valuable enough that uh, they create spin-off inventions in, in, in my, you know, my company's eyes, uh, that, that has been a, a, a real reward for the effort that I've put into it. So I, I'm going to talk a little bit as well about uh, engineering with a, a human-centered mindset. And one of the examples that I look to is, of course, again, rooted in my understanding of electrical devices, uh, remote controls, wireless devices, uh, the typical ways in which computer interfaces are built, say, on uh, a smart television set. Um, one of my big struggles today is 
how to help my mom, who's elderly, navigate a typical smart TV. And there are some real challenges there. This, this almost um, grand canyon leap between what your fingers are doing and what the highlighted box on a distant screen is doing. And even the question of, can she even see the highlighted box? Hmm. Does she understand that um, moving it down might activate it, might activate a menu, but moving it up will do a will exercise a completely different paradigm. And I find that typical electronics are designed very poorly. And I, I see so much room for improvement in the world of user interfaces, whether it is something, uh, whether it's a challenge created by age or created by a, a cultural understanding, even something as simple as reading right to left, which for the most part we've solved. But there are other perceptions of the world where uh, directions are not absolute. Directions are expressed in terms of your relative position with the person you're speaking with, with no sense of absolute direction coming into play. There are so many uh, cultural frameworks in which user experience could exist. I, I think we've barely scratched the surface. Unlock the power of collaboration and save up with a group discount. The larger the group, the larger the discount. And yes, two also counts as a group. If you are planning to attend a Design Matters conference with your team or friends, simply send an email to hello at designmatters.io and secure your exclusive group discount. See you at the conference. Thank you for, for that actual answer because uh, I just like think about accessibility and how important thinking in UX, like like all the different features that for somebody can think it's like, I will be assumed that this is normal, but the mental models of like each user is not the same in every like person, right? So it's so important to integrate human-centered design. And I'm really curious how you actually do it in human-centered engineering. Like how do you integrate like those principles into your design process to ensure that the pros and services are accessible? to diverse groups like that's that for me it's like so so important like accessibility and as you mentioned like we are just like scratching the surface yeah, yeah there was a uh, there was an hr presentation i saw many years ago where the hr director described their 16-step hiring process and it turns out at every step they were intentionally introducing inclusive processes or uh, or sanity checks to make sure that they were failing on inclusion. Every single step, uh, everything from the, 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 uh, the way that verbs are included in a job description to various stages of actual interview processes where gender bias might pop up or, or ethnic bias might pop up for that matter. So it was, it was kind of an eye opener for me that you know I could probably do this at every stage of the engineering process as well. And it turns out that in, in my world of work, the, uh, the opportunities are fairly narrow because I am a subject matter expert, not so much of an end-to-end -end -end product designer. So uh, again, like I said before, a lot, of, a lot of my thoughts find their way into the patent world as opposed to the specific subject matter of security in which I do a lot, an awful lot of my engineering. But, but the thing about uh, bringing these ideas into the design process is, is all about 
constantly keeping in mind uh, that uh, you're not necessarily the user and you may be imposing all of your thought processes and design understandings, uh, the doctrines that you were taught on the on uh, the ultimate design that you're coming up with. All your biases, the bias that the designer can, could have, and it's not bad that you have biases, but you have it, <laughs> so you need to be aware of. Right, right, and, and and I think it's important, you know, as difficult as it is to find those one percent users who can uh, assess your design, and they may point out things that are utterly unrealistic to change under your current schedule and budgets but it is a valuable learning exercise nonetheless to be humbled a little bit into recognizing that the, the best practices or the frameworks or the, the textbooks that you are using are failing people. And that, that's definitely one of the things that, that I try to keep in mind. Yeah, I, I can imagine, yeah. But I was just thinking about these, like, these little moments in, in products where, um, where people can feel seen, even if they are those one percent users, right? And you, you feel that moment. I, I I'm colorblind, um, and I, I often uh, become a customer for life if I ever find a product that's just had a, a moment where they say, "Hey, you know what? We have a colorblind mode, <laughs> or a way to be able to help you with your colorblindness." I, I think there's a there's a video game in particular I often think of, and I always go back to that video game because they had a, a setting to be able to turn off uh, the red and green settings that would just drive me. Um, drive me crazy when I'm trying to enjoy this product so it was making me think about that in the sense of like millions uh, if not uh, millions and uh, often billions of people that deal with uh, different constraints whether it be eyesight you're talking about your your mum with the tv and these little considerations that need to be put across in the whole end-to-end -end process um you're, I loved your HR story so sorry I got totally into my own head but it was because I was inspired <laughs> by what you were saying so that was a good thing um I would love to hear um I would love to hear some examples of projects where you've successfully balanced that aesthetic and functionality which you felt has created that user experience um while also prioritize, obviously prioritizing the diversity and inclusion uh, pieces that you're talking about, I'd love to hear a success story. Yeah, you know, I, this this one I don't get to talk about very much, but it, it popped up because it's 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 one that I have fond memories of, I guess you could say. Um, in the very early days of cell phones, um, they were capable of what text messaging, maybe a game of snake or something. Right. I love uh, that game. Remember, Lee. <laughs> a little black and white display, monochrome, 128 by 128. It's something really limited. And it was on these phones, they're the very first highly compressed browsers started showing up. And the technology changed very quickly. I mean, we, we quickly moved into 256 by 256 and maybe uh, 16 colors. I mean, that, that was boy, that, that was like rainbows blooming <laughs> right? when we when we saw those phones. Sadly, I remember. I'm sad that I remember those days, but yes, I do. But those early browsers, you know, one of our challenges was there were many different browsers in existence. There, there wasn't uh, like two or three monopolistic browsers uh, that, that, that had captured both users and developers' attention to the point where 
they were virtually compatible. The, uh, the challenge that we had were with these early phones, uh, we were in a position of trying to steer many, many different browser manufacturers towards a usable agreement in terms of the tags they would recognize. Uh, the number of, or the colors that they might be able to display, uh, display the typefaces. We, you know, there were the, the standard named typefaces, right? But it would have been utterly pointless to pursue perfection in the completeness of this micro CSS definition that said that, sure, we need scripts. <laughs> but no, not, not on a 256 by 256 display. <laughs> it, is, it, it would be satisfying to say that you could display script, but it would be far better to just not do it. Because at that point, uh, you're, you're actually um, hurting people by inviting developers to use it. And that's not something developers would necessarily be able to see because they don't have access to all those devices and the different browsers. So we were trying to um, establish some norms. And I, I wrote at the time, it was a pretty exhaustive test suite for all of the CSS and all of the HTML in this micro version uh, of HTML, HTML that was emerging as a standard. And we decided that, well, actually I decided that it made sense to essentially open source this, to not put, not put password or access protections on this test suite to make it fully readable. Um, all of the source code is there in plain static form, not to script it or dynamically generate it because my, my goal, uh, and I, I was able to convince uh, uh, the various companies that we work with that it would be far better to create an understandable, uh, an understandable lingua franca, a common baseline that developers could rely on, and that you know we as the uh, the phone manufacturers and the phone carriers could address as a de facto standard. And so my, my goal was to to try to try to push this uniformity. Uh, even through you know through the trick of open source and openly accessible uh, testing frameworks, so that we could we could encourage applications to home in more quickly on consistent design practices and approaches, which just made everyone's life a lot easier. So so that was uh, I have fond memories of that because uh, in in my really nerdy days I was out camping with friends and I wrote most of that test suite over the course of a weekend <laughs> <laughs> living off of the car battery and a very slow CDPD PCM CIA modem uh, it was it was a fun exercise and and very satisfying that I was able to get all of that done knowing in the back of my mind that I was I was driving uniformity with with this non-product it wasn't even a product that's the interesting thing. The it, first ever, the first ever mobile design system. <laughs> I, I suppose you could say that. <laughs> now, you know, more more recently, uh, I would say that uh, a lot of my engineering work, again, mostly on the patent side of things, uh, but but to some degree on the day-to-day -day engineering as well. Um, a, a lot of that inspiration I have found in human psychology. And it was, it was just recently that 
I began looking at a lot of the security work that I was doing in the context of uh, it being a reflection of human psychology and human interactions and fear and risk, right? You don't often hear about uh, security technologies expressed that way, but in the end, it, it does come down to the models of trust and safety and risk and harm that we as humans are constantly processing. So I've taken a lot of those uh, human concepts of trust and tried to bring them into some of the security projects and security inventions that I've been working on. It's, it's just really illuminating to uh, think of things like uh, how do you negotiate a zero trust relationship with a peer computer a lot of it parallels the same negotiations you do in real life with someone you've never met before uh, that's going to include credential checking it's going to include uh, ongoing risk assessment over a short window of time it's going to be testing risk by um, offering tidbits of information to see how a system reacts. Um, a lot of it parallels uh, the human psychology of fear and risk. And I've found that really useful. And the thing is, is the, it turns out that the, the human psychology of fear and risk has a really close parallel with the way that people exist and function within organizations. Uh, a lot of the constraints that we work under, as I mentioned before, those obvious ones like budget and time, those ultimately come straight back to the fear of getting fired. And so we live within um, an, an entire world of concerns and risks, uh, even in the workplace. And one of my goals through the emotional intelligence coaching and the storytelling that I do, uh, even the ERG work that I do, where there was one project in which we set up very heavily guardrailed safe conversations where people who had never dared ask could ask questions, sincere questions of people of color and where people of color who had never felt safe answering those questions frankly would be in a setting where they could answer them. And we did that with LGBTQ people. We did that with uh, veterans. We did that with immigrants. We, we went through a whole series of intimate conversation exercises. And I think the most important thing we proved to each other was that, you know what, it is possible to have these conversations safely and in a rewarding way within the walls of a workplace. And my goal was that we could shatter that preconception and perhaps open the door to deeper conversations of discovery and understanding and empathy that we could begin to exercise more frequently in the workplace in the hopes that the conversations that we have in an engineering sense inherit some of those senses of safety and trust that uh, otherwise you would never get if your manager said, let's enhance our trust. Let's practice psychological safety today. <laughs> it doesn't go very far unless people have that actual experience to unwrite a lifetime of caution.
Wow. Yeah. You give me so many ideas. Like I was thinking like how my computer communicate when you have a Tinder profile, like the same way that you computer like <laughs> like communicate. I was thinking like the whole sounds like dating. The like right? you were talking about you start talking about fear and pushing the boundaries and then what's the right what's the right location to have these like these types of conversations mm -hmm. like you know like you're not you're going to pick a like location to have that uh, type of conversation if you're dating in the same way you do it in the workplace and I loved how you took it from uh, humans to computers back to humans then back to computers it's this this the cycle of uh, checking yourself with like rigid systems but also complicated psychological systems and back and forth yeah and that's really that's and, really and, and I guarantee you that pretty much every every human experience surrounding safety security privacy has a computer analog and vice versa and I, and I and i wish that we would perhaps bring more of the humanity into the computing system design whether it is some kind of uh you know fuzzy algorithm or uh whether it's uh something that actually tries to model human processes i don't know i think there's opportunity there but i would love to see the the computing systems uh parallel human thinking a little bit more because I think it would improve uh, graspability and it may uh, lead to more natural uh, interactions between human and computers where the humans actually have some trust in the computing systems, much as we build trust with, uh, with other humans. Uh, there, there was one research paper that I saw which was fascinating in which uh, it was looking at humans and robots working in the same physical space. And yes, you could have a robot do very energy optimal movements in order to complete its tasks while working alongside a human in some kind of cooperative way, handing off parts or, or setting up things for the next step in the process. But the researchers uh, were finding some positive results in having the robots move in human-like ways so as to cue the human like other humans um, instinctively do to signal their intention to signal how they're going to move that doesn't come across in a mm. um, in an energy optimized or movement minimized uh, robotic design of a movement it was just a really fascinating way of, of again drawing some parallels between uh, humans and machines in a way that, well, <laughs> selfishly serves humans, which is, which is, I think, my ultimate goal. Now, Ginger, um, lastly, what advice would you give to aspiring designers um, and engineers, for sure, who wish to prioritize user experience and design with empathy in mind? For us, it's really important to give advice to people that are listening to us today and want to learn from you. Yeah, you know, I, I'm going to make a little pitch for the world of volunteerism as one of the ways that you can that you can fuse the the various hours of your day-to-day -day existence the you know the the nonprofits have a desperate need for people with skills you know whether it's to to do a, a website scrub or to uh, assist with uh, assist with graphic design. There, there are so many ways that you can bring your skills into the nonprofit world and directly influence the communities that they serve. I think that's it's such an easy thing to do. 
and you don't even have to be a pro necessarily at what you do. It's just a great way to blend what you already love doing or what you already know with um, making making an impact in your community. No, and, and also like people that are starting their careers and they don't know what to put in their portfolio. This is a win-a-win for everyone, right? Like you have the opportunity to put something together that add value to communities, to organizations, but also give you the opportunity to put your skills to the task. Right. Um, so uh, a win-a-win situation for, for uh, designers that would love to start creating something that make an impact. Yes. Yes. Uh, the, uh, the other, let's see, I will also emphasize that when you think about bringing empathy into the workplace, go ahead and think about that problem as uh, one of a problem that demands root cause analysis. <laughs> and, and what I mean by that is if you are unable to bring empathy into the earliest phases of product conceptual, conceptualization and product design, then you will have failed at, at injecting that thread of design thought into the entire design process. And it will probably not be there uh, by the time you get to the end. So one of the things that I've already touched on a, a couple different ways is to make sure that you are really, that you are really creating space for those ideas. And it, it has to be much more than lip service to inclusion. It has to be something lived and breathed on a continuous basis within the workplace because if you are to bring these 1% views, these 1% experiences into the design process and raise the red flags that would prevent an incomplete or a, uh, an, an, a, a failed design to, if you, if you allow that to enter the marketplace, then, uh, then you've not succeeded. And so one of the things that I've mentioned already is this, this notion of psychological safety and bringing these ideas into the daily conversations. Interestingly, it, you know, I'm at the point now where I can bring up some of my, some of my transgender experiences without, without skipping a beat for the most part. There are still times when I'm cautious in unfamiliar company, but in the workplace, it has gotten to the point where it is routine. Um, I find rewarding feedback from people who point out that uh, some of my insights are uh, ones that they would have never even considered before. And that there's a cycle there of the, the allies and the majority of the environment making the effort to create an inviting space. And then for those who have been cautious in the past to choose to take that risk and step into that space. But it doesn't end there because merely the absence of consequences is generally not going to be enough to rewrite a lifetime of, of cautious, uh, cautious practices. And so it's important for uh, the peers in the workplace or for recognition systems to honor the risk that everybody has taken in order to redefine that, that 
safety formula. Um, if, if you can't do that, then you're not going to have a, a, a sustaining system in which those ideas flow and continue to reinforce themselves. So I think that's that's probably my, my big message. If you're going to prioritize empathy, uh, don't just expect it to appear in your designs or your products simply because you ask for it. Uh, it's going to be built upon a long foundation, and it's a meaningful foundation of the communities with needs and with insights, speaking to the design requirements so that they can be incorporated in a, a knowing and intentional way into the final product and that the whole process is rewarding through uh, a, a company culture that recognizes the risks that people take in order to bring these things forward and to make them real. You know, I, I thought about this for a little while and I'm going to connect it with the digital divide. The digital divide, of course, is that, uh, that distinction between technology haves and technology have-nots. And, and the pace of change in the technology world is exponential, uh, without a question. We are on the, the upwardly screaming part of the ho hockey stick. And as a result, what we have are those at the floor at the bottom of the digital divide in terms of their access and their financial resources, uh, the technical systems that uh, they, they, can, they, can, they can reach, that floor is always going to be there. There will always be people in that situation who don't have those resources. Meanwhile, those who have the resources are just putting more and more distance between them and those who are left in that position on the floor. And I think design is one of those areas in which we can create equity. It's one of those, those, few, those few opportunities to inject equity into a system that is already very imbalanced. And if, if design is done well, then we can make systems and products, uh, we can make institutions, we can make uh, economies accessible to communities who would otherwise either not have access or be left behind in, um, in a situation where uh, those who enjoy access are racing ahead in, in unlimited ways. There's, there's kind of an, an open-ended opportunity in design because for the most part, uh, I, I think of design as an intellectual exercise that finds its impact in the scale of its application. And we can have a lot of impact with really good ideas. And among those are inclusive ideas. It honestly doesn't cost us anything to imagine those, those opportunities to introduce equity. Um, the opportunity lost is when we don't see them or we don't bother to think about them or we forget for convenience. And that is an ethical lens through which I try to think a lot about the engineering work that I do. Can I live with these decisions now that I know what the impact could be? 
from what I choose to do or from what I choose to ignore. Uh, there's this, this notion of, um, let me step back for a second. Uh, I received a question the other day from someone who asked me, is there anything that you would never give up? I said, well, you know, one thing I would never give up is the awareness that I have been gifted by people who've lived entire lives that I could never reproduce. I simply don't have the time to reproduce their lives and gain the knowledge that they have uh, or the experiences that they have or the exclusion that they've lived through. And it is, it is my, my ethical responsibility to not abandon them because I've also been in a place of feeling like the world has abandoned me. So there's, there's a, very, a very deep motivation for me to be empathetic in uh, the way I engage with society. And that includes the way that I bring my engineering to the world as well. Thank you so much for, for sharing all your knowledge and, and your deep like uh, experience in life. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you so much. And we'll be to the next one. Bye. We'd like to thank our guests who took the time to share their expertise, stories, and knowledge with us. Last but not least, a special thanks goes to you, our listeners. Your feedback and support help us improve the quality of this podcast and our conferences. Don't forget to find us at designmatters.io, on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter at designmattersdk. See you at our events in Copenhagen, Mexico City, Tokyo, and Lagos. This podcast was recorded and hosted by Sam Horner, produced by Leishi Curbelo, and managed by Georgian Lombardo. Thanks for joining us again for another episode of Design Tracks. This is a reminder that the opinions expressed by our guests are their own and not necessarily reflect the views of the hosts, Design Matters, or our sponsors. Our goal is to encourage an open dialogue and share diverse perspectives.